It's Tuesday, May the 5th. We're studying 2 Peter, and we're in a passage, if you remember the larger context here, of the false teachers that have invaded the church, starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We see that theme begun, and we see that God is promised God has promised to judge the false teachers, and uh, yet the the undercurrent is that to to the church, the encouragement to the church is that they will be uh, rescued, that God will keep them faithful, that God will keep them secure in their position, uh, that God will not allow them to lose their place of stability. It's going to take vigilance on their part, uh, but the series of examples given about God's coming judgment upon the false teachers, as you might remember as we look at the text here in 2 Peter chapter 2, is is, uh, at least in our English text, it's all marked off in the syntax, the outline of this grammatical section in English with these words, if. So we've got, if God did not spare the angels, if uh, God did not spare the ancient world, uh, and if he, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, uh, condemned them to extinction. So we, we have all these ifs, these three ifs here of the sinning angels, of the world that was flooded during Noah's day with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gets to the real sub-theme here, which is the encouragement to the church. There's another if right here in verse 7. We're going to deal with verses 7 and 8 today. Hard to break them up. Uh, And all of this is helpful for us to remember that this is about rescue, the idea of rescue, that God is going to rescue us so that we don't lose our position of stability, that we don't get sucked into the vortex of of false teaching and become uh, exploited by the false teachers. That's the context. So uh, the example of rescue here, of course, is not just Noah, although we see that theme pop up here uh, in the um, story of Noah, but we've got him rescuing righteous Lot. Let me just read it for us. These are verses seven and eight, 2 Peter chapter two, verses seven and eight. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Then you see this parenthetical section here. For just for as that righteous man, that's the second time he's called righteous here, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds, that's the problem, that he saw and heard then we're going to see that he can rescue the godly. And we'll get on to that tomorrow. But here is our passage for today. And let's think through this concept here of Lot. And I just thought it would be worth us reviewing a little bit of the story, since it's somewhat obscure, I suppose. So let's think of the original context here back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. This is Abram, before he was called Abraham, renamed by God. Uh, He went, as the Lord had told him, he's leaving that southern part of Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldeans. He's going to go up the uh, crescent, the, the uh, fertile crescent, the, the uh, Mesopotamian area, and over the desert into Canaan. That's where God's going to lead him. And it says here, Lot went with him. And Lot um, is his nephew, as we'll see. Um, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that, um, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, and on the story goes. But here we're rem- reminded that Lot is his brother's son. So this is his nephew. Now, the division in taking these two groups into two ge- different geographical areas, you might remember, is in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, Lot and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds. We just talked about the riches and wealth of Abram. Uh, and tents, so that the land could not support them dwelling together. Just too much, too many. Of course, uh, wealth was determined by all the herds and livestock they had, and the land could not uh, support them both. 
for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, right? You're my nephew. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. So Lot, and again, he's called righteous in our passage, but look at this. Although it's hard for us when given a choice not to choose the better of the two. Uh, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley uh, well watered. This is to the east now. Everywhere like the Garden of God, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, that's very important because contextually, if you think about the land of Zoar, you're going to think, well, that's all the, you know, the salting, the salt flats of the, you know, the, the uh, southern part of the Dead Sea. But trying to remind us here that this all hadn't happened yet. At that time, it was beautiful. It was uh, like the garden of, of the Lord, it says. So, Chot, so Lot rather chose for himself the Jordan Valley, uh, which went, goes into modern day Jordan today across that uh, Jordan River. Um, and uh, Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were very, were wicked, it says, great sinners against the Lord. And that's the context, of course, that led us into last week's discussion about the apex of their unrighteousness and God's destruction of this city. Um, and just by way of summary, after it was all done here in Genesis chapter 19 verse 29, so it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley, but God remembered Abram, Abraham rather, now he's renamed, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when, the, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And so God's going to deliver, and it's interesting how it's put here, God remembers Abraham. And we know that when you compare the righteousness of Lot with the righteousness of Abraham, it seems like Abraham is far more righteous, which there's no doubt about that. So just to give you again, just a little bit of the uh, geography here, so you know, uh, this is where he's going to flee, uh, Lot is. And you might remember the story as God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities here of this valley. Uh, this is where Abraham is and where the visitors, the angelic visitors come. Uh, and just to remember a little bit of who we're dealing with here, Lot. Uh, Lot's wife gets destroyed, as you remember. Uh, he has two daughters that are not named, that uh, he ends up getting drunk. Uh, they get him drunk, and they have kids um, by this incestuous relationship, which results in the Moabites and the Ammonites. Just for a little context here, Lot becomes um, the patriarch of those uh, foreign countries. All right, so this is important for us to recognize that Lot, though he is not righteous uh, in any uh, stellar way in the Old Testament narrative, other than the fact that he is not as sinful as those in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Sodom, of course, he protects the angelic visitors that come to him uh, as messengers and, and, and visitors to the town, and he is not willing to give them up, although it's very imperfect uh, at best. But it is a good reminder for us to know that so often in Scripture, that comparative sense of righteousness uh, is helpful and sometimes even comforting for us. Look at this passage in James, uh, which reminds us of Job. It says, take as an example of suffering uh, and patience. 
It says, brothers, the prophets, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And then he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. There's our word, hupomene. And we heard of the steadfastness or the patience of Job. You've heard that phrase, right? The patience of Job. Uh, often the old translations translate that word, hupomene, um, patience. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I just want to say, if you've read Job, he looks great in the first couple of chapters, but we don't see a lot of hupomene. I mean, we see enough for him to maintain himself to the 38th chapter, but when it comes down to it, and the 42nd chapter, but when it comes down to it, the righteousness of Lot and the patience of Job or the perseverance of Job, these are relative terms. I mean, Job is certainly a godly man, uh, but he's a godly man with a lot of faults. David, uh, I remember even the statement of uh, the promise to uh, David's um grandson, what if you could just have the integrity of David? Well, David had a lot of sin in his life, a lot of transgression in his life. So does Job. So does Lot. Uh, so it's just helpful for us to recognize there's something to be said uh, for the way in which we realize that all of the saints of God have got clay feet, that there's a, a sense in which is if you beat yourself up with the sense that you are um, struggling in some area of your life, just remember that um, we all are sinful, that as it says in 1 John, if you claim you're without sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. Uh, so it's a helpful thing to remember. Never should be an excuse or a license for apathy or staying where we're at. But uh, I just thought it's interesting here that this passage that calls Lot righteous, he's not a stellar example of righteousness, but relatively speaking, he is. Uh, and it says he was tormented. He was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Uh, and that is something that is a part of the Christian life that I hope you recognize is a good thing. I mean, we speak of the Christian life so often it's filled with joy, love, joy, peace, patience. Those things are true of the Christian life, but it is punctuated by the fact that as we look around in our world, we're distressed uh, even currently, no matter how good it may be uh, compared to other parts of the world or even in other parts of time. We are surrounded by a non-Christian society and non-Christian people who don't have a concern for God. And the Bible says that that kind of grief that you have, that kind of distress, look at our passage, uh, the, the distress, just to show the passage here on um, the screen, that he was tormenting his righteous soul, or over here distressed by the sensual conduct. These ideas of being distressed and tormented, that's gonna be a part of the Christian life today as it was for Lot back here in the Old Testament. And to remind you of that, I wanna want you to look at this passage in Ezekiel chapter nine. The Lord says during this terrible time um, when the nation of Israel had fallen into uh, sin and idolatry, uh, Judah was being destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Lord says, I want you to pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who, look at this now, who sigh and groan. They sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in the city, in it, in the city. And the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him, those who mark those people that are groaning, and strike, kill them. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall no, show no pity. So God's grace to the people in delivering them in Jerusalem are the people that are described in this passage as those who are sighing and groaning. That's a helpful thing to remember that the Christian life or any godly life is going to be punctuated by that sighing and groaning. I often quote these when I think of these words of being distressed by the sensual conduct or the wickedness of a society or feeling that sense of being tormented by lawless deeds and other people. I couldn't help but think of the lawlessness 
that surrounded the writer of Psalm 119, who I believe is David, and it says in Psalm 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because the people do not keep your law. You may think, well, that's just someone kind of whimpering over it. But look at this. It gets stronger with this word here in 158. It says, I looked at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Or back in verse number 53, it says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. So the lawlessness, which is a unique term, Peter uses it in the New Testament more than others, that idea of having that lawless behavior around us is something that leads to things like tears, disgust, and even hot indignation, anger. That's what indignation is, it's a just kind of anger. And it's gonna be a part of the Christian life. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that Psalm 118, by the way, remember, is a psalm celebrating the Word of God and a man whose heart is filled with the truth of the Word of God who can never get comfortable in a lawless or unbiblical society. And that reminds me of Psalm uh, 1, the first psalm, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. I mean, this is the world that we are living in right here. Right? This is the society that surrounds us. But instead, the reason we're going to make sure that we are not walking, standing, or sitting, kind of getting comfortable, and you can see the progression here, by the way, can't you? Walking, standing, sitting, kind of settling in. But instead, my delight should be, it says, in the law of the Lord. That's the thing that kept Psalm 119, the psalmist there, focused on God's truth that leads him to tears and disgust and even indignation over the things that surround him in the lawlessness of his society. But instead, we're focusing on his law. The more you focus on his law, the word of God, and meditate on it day and night, the more you're going to stay away from the walking, standing, and sitting and getting comfortable in this society in which we live. Lot there dwelt in a place that was sinful, and I guess you could argue, well, why didn't he just leave? And you can remember that he had the desert to one side, really had the desert on three sides, and Abraham's flocks to the west, and so in some ways you can say that was where he lived, and he was called to live out his life there, but it was one in which he was going to have that kind of frustration. So look at it again, let's just read it again. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, uh, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So the things you see and hear, and I don't want to put myself in the way of those things unnecessarily, but in the way in which we cannot avoid those things, I just want to remind you that you're in good company here. Keep the Word of God as your focus, and you will keep uh, your the proper, even emotional internal response to those things. It shouldn't dominate your life completely all the time, but it should punctuate the Christian life knowing that uh, we are sharing in the right perspective about the world around us when we have those moments of groaning and indignation and tears and disgust even. And so I commission you to that and remind you that Lot has something to teach us here in this passage, and we'll get to the real core of this section here as we deal with rescue. More on that next time, we're gonna see that God is able to rescue us no matter what the situation, if we're living in Noah's day or we're living in Sodom and Gomorrah, we can make it through. God's gonna commit himself to doing that. So I trust this is helpful for you. Be sure to subscribe, comment if you would, that's helpful and encouraging. And we'll be back tomorrow as we continue our study of 2 Peter chapter two.